Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining me today. This is part two for how can we share our faith with those who disagree with us. We're going to try to get some biblical insight onto this subject. And uh, we learned the first point yesterday was that no matter what identity a person chooses, that individual was created in the image of God. Now, I want you to know that's a statement of truth, okay? And that's so important because, you know, past generations of Americans, they viewed God on the basis of truth and morality. Well, that seems like that's not the case anymore. A new study has shown that Americans are rejecting the boundaries of absolute truth when it comes to morality. Did you know that 58% of adults surveyed believed instead that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. In other words, you have your truth, that's true for you. I have my truth, and that's true for me. Now, according to the findings from pollster George Barna, belief in absolute moral truth rooted in God's word is rapidly eroding among American adults. Now, this is regardless if they're church or unchurched, Within every political segment, we see this. Within every age group, we see this. Even among those who do identify God as a source of truth or the source of truth, there is a substantial rejection of absolute standard of morality in American culture. As a matter of fact, some would say the only absolute truth is that there are no absolute truths, to which I would say that is an absolute statement and cannot be true because there are no absolute truths if you follow that line of thinking. Maybe the most stunning research of this whole matter shows a rejection of God's truth and absolute moral standards by American Christians, those seen as most likely to hold traditional standards of morality. They are called evangelicals for the most part. They are defined as Bible-believing people who believe that the Bible is true that the Word of God is reliable, but they are also likely to reject absolute truth. Barna found that 46%, almost half, of evangelicals reject absolute moral truth. And as you look at this group of people, there's a minority of born-again Christians of 43% that still embrace absolute truth. So the study found that there's a pull of secularism. It is especially strong among younger Americans, right? Those under the age of 30 are most likely to select that God is a basis of truth, 31%. And they're more likely to say that moral standards are decided by individuals, okay? So 60% of those under 60 who claim to be believers in Christ, 60% say that moral standards are decided by individuals, 31% would say that God is the basis of truth. So here is how we share with those who disagree. No matter what a person's identity is, that person was created in the image of God. God has given us a conscience. God has given us this ability to discern certain things right, certain things are wrong. That is part of God's image that we understand, even unbelievers, even those who reject Christianity, believe there are certain things wrong. We may disagree as to what is wrong and what is right, but we do believe that some things are right, some things are wrong. Where did that come from? 
That came from being created in the image of God. We also look at creation, and we see the beauty of creation, and we realize that this is beyond the capacity of a man to create, or a person to create, or even a whole multitude of people to create. We cannot recreate creation. It's beyond our ability. It's beyond our capability. And so when we look at creation, we must conclude that somebody created this wonderful world that we live in, this earth, the sun and the stars and and the sea, and the fact that we are rotating and that we are circulating around the sun and the fact that the sun rises every morning and sets every evening. When you look at the beauty of God's creation, we must conclude if there's a beautiful creation, somebody created it. So here's the second point. When we're trying to share God's word with those that we disagree with, we must stand firm in our faith. In Matthew 19, Jesus said, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, you may have never thought of this as a statement of faith, but it is. It's a statement of faith of what marriage is. Now, as we look deeper into this statement of faith, we discover why it is the way that it is. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, okay? And I'm going to go back to Matthew 19 in just a moment. But Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, notice the context in which Jesus is saying this. He is reminding us that as followers of Christ, we're either with him or we're against him. If we're with him, then we're going to do everything he tells us to do. We're going to follow his commands. We're going to believe what he declares as truth. And when we look at this matter, we are reminded that we are able to have forgiveness of every sin except for one. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say, if you commit homosexual acts, you'll not be forgiven. If you steal, you'll not be forgiven. Or if you lie, you will not be forgiven. He says every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except or but rejecting the Spirit. Jesus is now making a correlation between himself and the Spirit when he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And he's reminding us that we can have forgiveness of every sin except rejecting the gospel. Now, when we go to Matthew 19, Jesus says a man will leave his father's mother, hold fast to his wife, the two become one flesh. Now, why did Jesus make this statement in Matthew 19? Now, Moses had allowed for a bill of divorcement. The Pharisees are coming up against him, trying to trip Jesus up on this matter of marriage, thinking they got him. But Jesus goes back to the original intent of marriage. He goes back to the book of Genesis. Now, what they missed in his analogy, and what many people miss in this analogy, is the fact that Jesus was bringing back the foundation of marriage to a relationship that we have with God. God wanted us to understand that when mankind fell into sin, God pursued a relationship with mankind. Jesus left his Father, which is in heaven, and he came onto this earth. A man leaves his father and mother, holds fast to his wife. Jesus left his Father to unite with us. He identified with us in every part of life. He was tempted and tried in every way, but yet he never sinned. That's what Christ did for us. Although he never sinned, 
he was placed upon the cross, and the sins of all humanity were placed upon him. He was the atonement for our sins. When he died on that cross, all of humanity's sin was placed upon him. He died willingly for our sins to pay for the sacrifice, to pay for the price of our sin. He was sacrificed, but he rose again three days later. Now, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are born again. So stand firm in your faith. When I think about being born again, my life has been radically changed because of what Christ has done for me. Now, I still mess up. I still fall into sin. And it's so important as we look at this, Christians are not sinless. Now, we do, hopefully, sin less frequently, but we're not perfect. We are declared righteous. One day, we will receive a glorified body. But until that time, we still mess up. That's why I love 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins. Now, this is written to believers. Let me divert for just a moment and talk to believers. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, notice how John brings about that terminology. If we confess, this is written to believers. When believers confess, it doesn't say that God is merciful. Why doesn't John put that word, God is merciful, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness? He uses the word just. Why is that? Because believers are already justified. Because of the justice of God, they are receiving that forgiveness as they confess their sins. They don't need God's mercy. They are getting now God's justice because God has already paid for our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. John is reminding us of the justice of God, that he's not going to hold us accountable for a sin that Jesus already paid for. That would be double jeopardy, right? He's saying God's just. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you receive his mercy at the point of salvation. It's by his mercy that we are saved. But once we're saved and we fall into sin, and I got to be honest with you, it's kind of discouraging how often I sin. And so I constantly confess my sins. And sometimes I'm wondering, is the Lord ever going to lose his patience with me? I think about sins that I've been struggling with for a long time. I keep confessing them and keep confessing them. And, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I wonder, is the Lord going to get sick and tired of hearing me come to, to confess my sins once again? No, but God is just. He will forgive based upon the fact that Jesus has already paid for that sin. When I think about this, we can stand firm in our faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, so we stand firm in our faith as we share the gospel with those who disagree with us. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes these words, Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And then he says, in addition to all this, take up that shield of faith, which will extinguish all of those fiery arrows that the evil one sends. And then he says, take on the helmet of salvation, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
and then pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, these passages of Scripture, Ephesians 6, 14 to 18, is such an encouragement to me, right? Sadly, I think there are some Christians who wish Paul had written the words a little bit different. I think there are some Christians who think it'd be better if Paul had written this passage this way. Lay back and relax. Then with the belt of evasion buckled loosely around your waist, with the breastplate of defensiveness in place, and with your feet fitted with pluralism that offends nobody, in addition to all this, take up the shield of grudges with which you can hold on tightly to hurts and to slights. Take on the helmet of entitlement and the bludgeon of the flesh, which is the word of anger. And air was been done to you on all occasions with all kinds of criticisms and complaints. Now, hopefully that's not you wanting to have that text rewritten that way. We are reminded with this in mind, be alert. Always keep praying for the saints. You see, we are to love God and to love people, but we're also to remember that we are more than conquerors. We're to put on the armor of God so that we can resist things that are contrary to God's word. You know, we're also told in Galatians 6, 9, that we're not to grow weary in our well-doing. And I know it can be awful worrisome when you're sharing the gospel and you're feeling like nobody is responding and nobody is interested. But don't grow weary in your well-doing. When the time is right, when the season's right, you will see a harvest of souls. So when we're sharing our faith with those who disagree with us, remember, even those who disagree with us, regardless of their identity, they were created in God's image. Secondly, we've got to stand firm in the faith. And then number three, we've got to remember that the sexual sins, boy, they're complicated, right? But it's not a gray area. Sin is complicated. The sexual sins are complicated, but it's not grayer. Matthew chapter 15. This is what Jesus says. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. And then he gives us a list. Now, I noticed with sexual immorality, throughout Scripture, it's generally given in a list, right? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Let's look at what Jesus says. We're in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20. He says, it's what comes out of your mouth is coming from your heart. That's what defiles you. So it's a heart matter, right? It's what's within your heart that is causing you to do murder, causing you to live in adultery, causing you to live in sexual immorality, causing you to steal, give false testimony, and slander. This is a heart matter. So we could change outward behavior, but if the heart doesn't change, then the outward behavior will continue. The outward behavior is based upon the heart. Jesus says that's what defiles a person. We're not defiled because we eat with unwashed hands. Now, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees who are getting after him and his disciples and saying, you guys are eating 
without washing your hands. Now, he's not talking about, you know, like your mom used to tell you, hey, you got to wash your hands before we eat. It wasn't a health issue. It was a ceremonial issue that the disciples were not ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. And Jesus says, that's what defiles a person. It's not a ceremony issue. It's a heart issue. And so when we think about this matter of sexuality, we all have been broken sexually because sin messed up every component of our lives. It messed up the way we think. It messed up our health. It messed up our ability to reason well. It messed up our longevity. It messed up the fact that we're going to get sick. We have all been broken because of sin, and we are even broken sexually because of sin. Now, the connection between sexual immorality and idolatry is noticed in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 18, which says, flee sexual immorality. All of the sins a man commits are outside the body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So the body of believers is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Pagan idol worship often involved a perverse and an immoral sexual acts. They were performed in the temple before a false god. So when we use our physical bodies for immoral purposes, we are imitating pagan worship by profaning God's holy temple with acts that he calls detestable. Now, as we look at this, We are living in a day and age where it seems like we justify sins of immorality. And maybe you have heard a few of these concerns, and maybe you have even given a few of these reasons why you are are living in sexual immorality. Somebody would say, well, it's not wrong to have sex with somebody. Uh, It's not wrong if we love each other, right? We love each other, so that's just go ahead. We're going to go ahead and have sex with somebody because we love that person. Now, I want you to know, the Bible makes no distinction between loving and unloving sexual relationships. The only biblical distinction is between married and unmarried people. Sex within marriage is blessed by God. Sex outside of marriage is called fornication, adultery, or sexual immorality. So, it's not wrong, so you think, if you love somebody. I want you to know, that if you really do love somebody, you're going to have sex with that person when you're married to that person who is a member of the opposite sex because you're going to show that love by waiting, right, until you get married. You know, when you think about loving, you know, you don't have to have sex with somebody to love somebody, right? As a matter of fact, the only one, biblically speaking, that you really have sex with is your spouse. And we trust that you love your spouse. That's why you get married. Uh, So obviously you're going to love somebody and get married to that person and have sex with that person. But just because you love somebody doesn't mean you're going to have a sexual relationship with that person. As a matter of fact, the majority of the people I love, I've never had sex with, right? (laughs) That is saved for the marriage bed. The marriage bed is honorable, right? And so when we look at it, love really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's following the biblical mandate of keeping sex sacred within the confines of marriage. Well, some people say, well, you know, times have changed. 
what was wrong in biblical times is no longer considered sin today. Now, it's important to understand that most passages that condemn sexual immorality, when the Bible says sexual immorality, it's covering all sex sins outside of the confines of marriage. And so when we look at this, we also see that most of these passages not only are condemning sexual immorality, but they also include things like greed and lust and stealing and et cetera. Most of these passages also deal with other issues. And so why is it that nobody says, well, times have changed, so stealing is no longer a sin, or greed is no longer a sin, or lying is no longer a sin? You see, we have no problem understanding that those other sins are still sins. God's character doesn't change with cultural opinion. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord your God, I change not. Well, some people say, well, we're married in God's eyes. Even though we're not legally married, in God's eyes we're married. So the fallacy of this idea is that God has created marriage And so why would he retract his own command to accommodate what he has called sin? You see, God declared marriage to be one man, one woman, united for life. That's fine in Mark 10, 6-9, Matthew 19. Uh, The Bible often uses the imagery of a wedding and a covenant marriage as a metaphor to teach spiritual truth. So God takes marriage seriously, and his eyes see immorality for what it is, regardless of how cleverly we may have redefined it. You see, you're not married in God's eyes until you're married legally. When you commit yourself to one another, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. Well, some people would say, you know, I can still have a good relationship with God, even if I'm living and immorality. Proverbs 28.9 says, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. David said, If I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You see, we fool ourselves when we think that we can stubbornly choose sin and that God doesn't care. 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4 contain a serious challenge for those who persist in this line of thinking. John says, for we know that we have come to know him. Well, how do we know we know him? We keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Listen, when you're living in sin, it taints your relationship with God. It's not that he's abandoned you. It's not that you've lost your salvation. But when you're living in sin, it clouds that relationship. I guess you could say it's like a husband and wife. When my wife and I are not getting along, our relationship is strained. As a matter of fact, there's even been times in my relationship with my wife that we have gone through times that we were not on speaking terms. Uh, That's kind of disheartening to hear that, isn't it? After all these years of being married, you you think we would not be so immature as to get down to that level of not speaking to one another. But what has happened when we get to that point? Uh, We're still married. She's still my wife. I'm still her husband. I still love her. She still loves me. But the fellowship is broken. And when we get whatever is breaking that fellowship taken care of, 
we can experience sweet communion. The same is true in our relationship with God. Hebrews 13.4 makes it very crystal clear that marriage must be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God does judge sexual immorality. You see, sexual immorality is wrong. The blood of Jesus can cleanse us from every type of impurity when we repent and when we receive His forgiveness. But that cleansing means that our old nature and all of its old practices, they are to be put to death. Paul says to the Ephesian believers, Among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of any kind of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Well, we've run out of time today, and so please join me tomorrow as we finish up this series on biblical morality and how to share your faith with those whom you disagree with. If you have a prayer request, would you shoot me a text? 252-267-2365. 252-267-2365. Thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to see you at worship this Sunday, Hickory Ridge Community Church at 9 or 1045. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.